This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, you know, today it's a holiday for a lot of people. So we thought, you know, we'll have a little fun with our hot question of the day. And then when we saw this in the news, we thought, well, we got to talk about this. So a new episode of The Simpsons coming up is going to be Canadian themed. And I'm thinking it's about time. You're telling me after all these years, they haven't done a Canadian themed episode before. They've done episodes on Australia. Remember when Bart went to Australia and got in trouble and all that stuff, but they haven't done Canada before. Well, they're about to and. It will include a portrayal of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And apparently, they may also just reference a certain scandal slash controversy. So I know I'm going to be watching this episode. But it got us talking here about Simpsons episode and which one is your favorite. So we have some choices for you for our hot question of the day, okay? We want to know what is your favorite Simpsons episode. Is it the mono dough? Main Street's still all cracked and broken. Sorry, Mom, the mob is spoken. Mono Don't Monorail episode. Such a good one. Or maybe it's the We're talking softball. We're talking softball. From Maine to San Diego, talking softball. Mattingly and Canseco. That's a pretty good one, too, I have to admit. But then for me, personally, there is only one really exceptional Simpsons episode that is my absolute favorite. (laughs) That's, of course, Sideshow Bob and the Rakes. Remember, that's the Cape Fear-themed episode where Bart has to sing the entire score of the HMS Pinafore just to escape Sideshow Bob. Fantastic. Which one is your favorite? Or maybe it's another one. You can reply and tell me. Simi at CKNW.com or go online and vote at Simi Sarah 980. This is all because the Simpsons have decided to do a Canadian-themed episode. You can call our buzz line to 604-331-BUZZ. 290. That is where the death toll now stands in the Sri Lankan bombings that happened this Easter weekend. The vast majority of the victims are from Sri Lanka, along with 39 foreigners from countries such as Australia, Great Britain, China, the United States, and others. 24 people have been arrested in connection with the explosions that took place at popular hotels and well-known churches. This is a a country that is very religiously diverse. About 7.5% of the population in Sri Lanka is Christian. The vast majority, 70%, are Buddhist, about 12% are Hindu, and almost 10% are Muslim. Now, information and kind of visuals about the explosions has been a little slow to come out of the country, and that may have to do with the fact that the government has blocked social media sites such as WhatsApp and Facebook after the attacks happened. Uh, they said it was to prevent misinformation being spread, and that's, there's, that's a very legitimate concern. But there are also questions about what the government may or may not have known or what they were warned about ahead of time. Questions. Who did this? Why? I mean, people are still wondering. They want to know what went on here. Now, outlets like the New York Times are reporting that the government did have warnings about the attack. The Times is reporting that as early as April 4th, security agencies in India shared specific intelligence about the possibility of suicide attacks with counterparts in Sri Lanka. 
So questions surround the president who controls the security services for what he did and didn't know and what he did or perhaps did not pass on. So the country's president has now given the military some pretty sweeping powers to arrest and detain suspects after the nine bombings in this case. Now, for more on this, uh, CBS Radio military analyst Mike Lyons joined Sterling Fox this morning on the John McComb Show and explained what the intelligence community likely knows at this point and who the people behind the attacks may be. Well, they have actually have about 24 people now arrested in connection with this uh, devastating suicide bombings that took place coordinated against uh, hotels and churches, clearly a, a, an attack on people of faith. Um, the government's blaming a national Throheath Jamaya, or little-known radical Islamic organization, for the bombings. And it did say it had some information out before. There were some warnings by individuals on social media. Um, and it's, it's likely that uh, they're going to investigate also that they were involved internationally, that they must have gotten help from folks outside of Sri Lanka. That will be probably where they'll start when they look to investigate. So the country's civil war, as we've been hearing, ended about 10 years ago. In fact, 2009 is when uh, peace was finally made. But as Mike Lyons pointed out, that Islamist jihadist movement that exists in parts of the Middle East is present in Sri Lanka. In fact, other countries have been on alert through that part of Asia, uh, waiting for signs of this. And some of those in the group choose to attack what they call easy or soft targets. The the civil war that was fought was significant, um, went on for many years and and it did end over uh, about 10 years ago but it it looks like now this is about the unfortunate spread of this islamist jihadist uh, movement that takes place um in the world that's that that, that's gained momentum outside of you know the middle east and middle east proper let's say um and they look for targets of of opportunity uh and use these terrorist threats i mean there's nothing you can do to prevent a suicide bomber other than stop the means from the individual of having the capability to do it, and that's probably where the government said that they failed. They, sh- they should have been more vigilant in, in taking this threat more seriously and checking in on these people before it happened. And that is where a lot of this focus is right now, because as I mentioned, other countries are saying, listen, we shared intelligence with Sri Lanka about this very specific threat. And once they shared that with the security agencies, nobody, look, what happened to it? Why were people not alerted? Why did they not put extra precautions in place? Mike Lyons said that as well as the threats and the warnings of the attack through social media weren't taken seriously, at least not anywhere near as much as they should have been. And I think that we're always challenged in today's world with that because of, of the saturation that takes place and what people put out there in different forms, both in written an audio and, and video format. I believe there was a, a YouTube video of one of the individuals here claiming uh, that they would increase this, this war and take uh, the message and, and the threat and, and the attacks to um, the infidels. Um, but it, it gets dismissed as either crazy or just too broad and, and, and capable of actually trying to follow up on them. But I think in today's world, it's something that they're going to have to uh, reconsider. They ended up suspending social media activity on Sri Lanka that's for right, yeah. uh, the time being. Yeah, because and, and that's way to, to make sure disinformation was getting out and they weren't allowing, let's say, uh, the enemy was using um, social media in order to communicate, then it would it'd shut them off from doing that. Right. But the system, the way the country is set up with its government is also raising a lot of questions here because the prime minister of Sri Lanka, who is Ranil Rikwin Asinga, 
uh, is asking questions, addressed the media after the attack, saying that the government is going to be investigating. And the reason why that is, is it is the president who is in charge of the national security agencies. There has been this kind of ongoing political dispute between the president and the prime minister. So you've got the president who may have been told by the security agencies what the warnings and the threats were. And now you've got the prime minister who did not know and was not told saying that the government's going to be investigating the reason that robust security precautions were not in place. While this goes on, we must also look into why adequate precautions were not taken in this respect. But first and foremost, we have to ensure that terrorism does not lift its head in Sri Lanka. We cannot allow that. And we are prepared to take all measures necessary to ensure that terrorism is contained and wiped out in this country. We will get all assistance possible from Sri Lanka and outside to contain this menace and to wipe it out. What we should do is hold our unity as Sri Lankans and ensure that we wipe out these minutes once and for all. That is Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe uh, talking about what the government plans to do here. The Justice Minister as well has also spoken out uh, saying we are ashamed of what has happened. He called the attacks a colossal failure on the part of the intelligence services. So you can kind of see that within the government here, the lines are already being drawn. They've got several ministers in the government now calling on the National Police Chief to also resign here. And meanwhile, you've got the supporters of the president who are pushing back saying that no no we did everything possible so they've actually appointed a special committee already that is led by a supreme court judge to uh, investigate this matter and so there is what did they know what did they not know at this point and how much warning did they give to people or how much security did they put in place and the reason why as well this is generating so much discussion is that that 10 years of peace in Sri Lanka uh, really changed things in that country where every year they have seen increasing numbers of tourists come to Sri Lanka where tourism now is a huge industry there as demonstrated by kind of the targets that were chosen by the group involved here Dill, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this very difficult subject. This It was near and dear to you. You know a lot about this area. I do, Simi. I'm, I was, I'm a Sri Lankan now living in Ireland for the last 20 years. And I, I left Sri Lanka when I was 21. Like many LGBTQ people, I, I felt I had to leave uh, because homosexuality is yet to be decriminalized in Sri Lanka. But, but having said all that, it's still uh, my, my home country and I absolutely adore it. And, and we really thought that it's nearly a decade of peace. You know, so the civil war ended in 2009 and we, we genuinely thought that these times were, were really got behind us. And I think I speak for all Sri Lankans, not just the ones who are living in Sri Lanka, but around the world, that we're really shocked that um, we are back. It feels like we're back in that horrible, traumatic place again where we're almost afraid to watch news uh, because there was another explosion today and it just feels too, too familiar for us all. Yeah, was, is that what it was like before the peace did happen 10 years ago? Yeah, it was always a, there was an element of unpredictability. You just didn't know when uh, there would be a, a bomb and where it would happen. It was just a, 
you know, it is very difficult for people to actually live uh, live a you know a, a sort of a normal regular life because uh, it just went on and on for for decades. And it was mainly be- between the Tamils and the Sinhalese, which are mainly the Buddhist and the, and the Hindu. And this has really caught us by surprise that for the first time Christians have been targeted. And for me personally. The church, St. Anthony's Church in Colombo, would, would have been the church that my family went to. I have very fond memories of growing up in Sri Lanka and going to that church with my, my, with my grandfather. And that church um, has a special significance for people from Colombo because it's very inclusive. You have Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslims who go to that church because um, St. Anthony, for, for some reason, is, is, is um, respected by people from different religions. And is the lovely thing is you would have a Christian uh, worshipping shoulder to shoulder with a with a Hindu person or a Muslim person in this church. And it's really quite tragic that this had to be the target of this. And then the hotel, the Cinnamon Grand, would would be a hotel that I, I stayed in just less than a year ago. And my cousin, my, my, my the entire family was meant to be having lunch there. And the manager who took their reservation sadly died in the in the in the bomb blast. So it it is extremely close to my heart, and it's uh, horrific to to know that unfortunately all this is happening unfolding all over again. Dil, how large is the Christian population in Sri Lanka? It's quite large. I believe it's about one point seven million. I mean, it, uh, for for a small country, we have a quite a large population. Uh, I think it's 17 or 18 million uh, people, uh, and you're know, going to try and explain that to Irish people uh, who, you know, our country here is like about six million people. They're like, "What? <laughs> you know, it sounds so so big." But the beauty about Sri Lanka is that they've had four major religions. You have the Buddhists, with the Hindu, we have the with the Christians and the um, the Hindus, and we all live. You know, side by side, um, we coexist happily. Anyone who's ever traveled to Sri Lanka will be very familiar that one moment you could hear the calls for prayer from the mosque and the next moment you'd hear church bells ringing. And we actually would, um, we observe all the public holidays, like Buddhists, the, the full moon is a sacred day for them. So on a, on a monthly basis, we have a bank holiday on the full moon. And then this before we talk about Christmas and Easter and before we look at the Muslim holidays and the Hindu holidays. So it's, I know in a way, Sri Lanka is a model how you know religion mm-hmm. can coexist. And yet we, we've, ha- we've had you know, uh, numerous uh, acts of senseless violence over the years. And you know, when the civil war ended in 2009, I, I, I know I speak for many Sri Lankans, we were all very uneasy at how it ended because it didn't feel like there was real meaningful resolution uh, between the two parties involved. And, and I suppose I, I in some way feel this was something that was going to reemerge because you know, the road to peace is, is, is a very long, hard and precious one. And, and I, I really felt in 2009 the way it was handled, it wasn't done in a, in a way that, um, that, was, that brought meaningful uh, resolution for both sides. So it, it's really sad that we, might, we may be at the start of uh, yet another conflict in our country. There is a lot of questions about the, the, what the government knew or didn't know, perhaps leading up to this. They also blocked some social media sites such as Facebook and WhatsApp immediately after the bombing. What what kind of relationship does the government have with the people there? Ah, well, it, it's really interesting when it comes to media and, and Sri Lanka because my my cousin, um, and I'm going to try and not get upset when I mention his name, Richard De Soisa would be the first Sri Lankan journalist who died over 25 years ago because of his journalistic integrity. And they still commemorate his um, his death on an annual basis because 
he spoke out during the, the troubles in Sri Lanka and leaked to the international media just the, the level of discrimination that was happening um, between the Sinhalese and the, and the Tamils. And, and as a result, he was actually murdered and by, by the Sri Lankan death police. So, so there is a, a very, uh, again, uncomfortable history there between the Sri Lankan government and the media. And, it, and I find it very interesting that there, ha- there haven't been any images of the, the hotels that have been that were affected yeah. by the bomb blast. You know, the, you only see the pictures of the of the, the churches, and I think it's mainly because of the tourist industry. They don't want uh, this this horrendous incident to impact on the tourist um, trade of, of in Sri Lanka because it is uh, unfortunately one one of their biggest industries. Uh, but I ju- I just feel when you start, you know, you know the, the democracy, you know, a true democracy if um, if journalists are able to speak their mind, and, and Sri Lanka has had a long history where there's been self-censorship, where journalists have not been able to speak their mind because they knew if they did, something like what drastic that happened to, to Richard de Sousa may happen, may happen to them. And, and it's really interesting that the government has known about this um, you know, since January. Actually, in January this year, they apprehended a group of people uh, and found 100 kilos of explosives and 90 detonators. Uh, and this was just in January. So, so they knew something was happening. And, and I believe that even the ministers were told to increase the security detail, which they did. But unfortunately, none of this information was passed on to the public because I think, again, they, they didn't want to maybe, uh, you know, maybe make people panic, maybe even um, let it leak into the international press, which then would uh, maybe impact on the tourist rate. And, and I think that is a really dangerous ground because what, what's more important here is people are profit. Absolutely, people are more important. And I know there's a lot of Sri Lankans, uh, a lot of us living either there and abroad, how outraged at the fact that the Sri Lankan government knew this and they didn't act in a in an efficient uh, and timely fashion. It's interesting, though, that when you talk about the tourism industry in Sri Lanka, because 10 years ago that wouldn't have been the case, and so that really indicates how, how far Sri, Lankan, uh, Sri Lanka has come when it comes to peace and, and putting that out there in the world. Mm, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it, in 10 years, I think um, people are feeling much more comfortable about Traveling over to Sri Lanka, even when I went over last year for the first time in uh, in, in a number of years because um, my mother was ill, I remember being quite surprised at the, the, the growing up in Sri Lanka. I was so used to police and army checkpoints uh, every every few uh, you know kilometers. You know, uh, going into a hotel or even going through the airport, you wouldn't be able to go into a government building without um, you know metal detectors. You know, it was a very common. Um, way of life and last year when I went there there was none of that you know so so there was a, a real feeling I felt that uh, people thought oh the troubles are very much behind us uh, and maybe there's an element of you know they're realizing now hang on maybe we were a little bit too complacent and we didn't take uh, the what happened in, in January and the few other incidents they had even they had an incident a serious quite a serious incident last year as well which involved a death of a of a, 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 a Buddhist a, a man and a, and a Muslim man. So these are all, I think, um, incidents that should have been taken more seriously. And you know, instead, and, and instead of uh, and, and instead of worrying about how is this going to impact the image of Sri Lanka, again, let's bring it back to the people. You know, people's safety is very important. And, and if something like this is happening, there are undercurrents. You know, we need to be mindful of this because there's, there's political unrest. Let's bring everybody to the table and let's talk it out before it escalates to to senseless violence. Well, Dil, thank you so much for talking to us about that.
Thank you so much, Timmy, for having me. All right, let's talk speed limits. I know this has been a hot topic over the last few days. Should BC lower the unposted speed limits on residential streets to 30 kilometers per hour? So we're talking neighborhood streets here, right? Not main thoroughfares. This is an idea that is being promoted by Vancouver Green Party Councillor Pete Fry. He'd like to see the province drop that default speed limit. And he's got a motion coming before Vancouver City Council that calls for the city to work with the Union of BC Municipalities to lobby for this change. So obviously we had a lot of questions, right? Because this has sparked quite a discussion. So Pete Fry joins us now in studio to talk more about this. Hi. Hi, nice to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, on a rainy On a rainy Monday, holiday. Quote unquote holiday Monday. Holiday Monday, yeah, exactly. Where did this idea come to you? Like, why did you decide to advocate for this? So this is actually a worldwide movement. It came out of Sweden in 1997. It's called Towards Vision Zero. And uh, this has actually been adopted throughout most major cities in Europe and and small towns across Europe. Uh, And the idea is that basically if you get hit by a car at – so in in Europe they call it 20 is plenty because, of course, they're in miles per hour. So 20 miles per hour is about 32 kilometers an hour. And uh, basically if you get hit by a car at 20 miles per hour, your chance of surviving – is uh, and avoiding serious injury or uh, or death is about ten percent. As soon as you get to uh, fifty kilometers an hour, or about uh, thirty miles per hour, that goes up to forty percent of serious injury or death. So it's pretty significantly life changing. And and uh, as we're recognizing, as we're increasingly densifying our cities, and we're increasingly uh, recognizing that 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 roadways represent a significant amount of public space where we don't have enough park space, we don't have enough active space. So people are walking more, they're cycling more, they're, they're skateboarding, all sorts of active transportation modes on streets. And people are coming to the realization, what are our streets for? Are they exclusively for the use of cars or can we share? So when we talk about residential streets, we're talking about streets that don't have a center line. So we're not talking about Kingsway or Broadway or even 12th Avenue. We're talking about the, 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 the residential streets where kids play ball hockey and yell car when a car comes along. Okay. And now, do people actually hit 50 kilometers an hour on those streets? Because well, this is what I'm wondering. That's the interesting thing. I think if you, know, if you look at your speedometer as you're driving down a residential street, most of us drive at 30. That's just how yeah. normal people behave. Now, in some neighborhoods, like my neighborhood, uh, we have an increasingly big problem with commuters who race through the neighborhood. So I live in Strathcona. Uh, and recently they reactivated the Burrard Inlet train line, which effectively cuts off a pretty significant arterial of Venables Prior. And when it cuts off, the, and this can be for 10, 15, even 20 minutes at a time, commuters get frustrated. They start rat running through the neighborhood and they find all sorts of traffic calming measures that frustrate them even, even further. And they start driving at 50. And it's noticeable when people are driving at 50 in a residential neighborhood. Uh, and it's scary and it's dangerous and... This is the kind of conversation that a lot of communities are having. So a lot of the responses I've been getting to this motion have been from people who are, hey, can you add my neighborhood to this potential pilot project here in the city of Vancouver? Because we have a problem in our neighborhood. Interesting. Because like I was thinking about this too, because in my residential neighborhood, there's a lot of little kids that play out on the street. And we have a lot of signs out, right? Parents put the signs out telling people to slow down. Uh, And I I don't think anybody actually goes 50 kilometers per hour. But I was wondering what the end result is. Is it to get people to slow down? Is it to save lives? Because the majority of pedestrian fatalities happen on busy streets, not on residential streets. That's that's right. And so ICBC maps maps injuries yeah. and fatalities, and and you can readily look. And it's the 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 injuries and fatalities are predominantly on arterials mm-hmm. or secondary arterials. Rarely are they on residential streets. But then the question becomes: What is 
what is an acceptable number of death or injuries on residential streets? Is there a threshold that, that somebody has in mind that is an acceptable number? Or is it maybe just uh, an appropriate behavioral response to encourage people to just go slower on residential streets? I tell you what I would love to see enforced is stop signs on residential streets. That is a huge problem where people do the California stop or the rolling stop at stop signs in residential neighborhoods. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It is. And, uh, you know, I mean, this isn't, uh, I think one of the, the, the critical kind of considerations in this is that it's, it's, it's kind of an empty gesture without any enforcement. Mm-hmm. So, yes. so, you know, recognizing that this is kind of a behavioral approach to just encourage people to be a little bit more mindful of their surroundings when they're in residential neighborhoods, that's one part, and allowing uh, the police the opportunity to enforce. So, for instance, in my neighborhood of Strathcona, when we know that there's a train crossing and traffic is getting backed up, and we know that commuters are going to start getting aggressive and, and traversing the residential part of the neighborhood, that'd be a perfect opportunity for the police to maybe just set themselves up and say, hey, you know what? The, 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 the speed limit now, the default speed limit is 30 kilometers an hour. It's not 50, so slow down. Right. Is education what's needed here, or do we really need a uh, change of law? Well, you know, Portland, Oregon recently passed this for their entire city, and and it, it, it's it's become sort of a symbol of what they aspire to be as a city. And so it has actually extracted sort of a behavioral change. And what's really interesting is it's taken things like controversial issues, like, say, separated bike paths that get a lot of people angry and stuff. It's actually allowed cyclists to feel more comfortable going through residential neighborhoods rather than needing to have a separated path on an arterial. So it's actually kind of had a benefit for a lot of things that that upset people around arterial traffic. So there's there's a whole, it's it's really a shift in how we view certain mm. types of streets. Is this a Vancouver problem, or do you think this applies to communities everywhere? I think this applies to communities everywhere. And this is where the, the Vision Zero is picking up momentum in you know, Seattle just passed this for parts of Seattle. New York's passed this for part. So big cities around the world are, are saying, you know what, let's rethink how we treat our residential streets what about outside of Vancouver, though? Like, is this is this relevant in like Maple Ridge and in Surrey and in Langley? Well, I've heard from another a number of councillors from other municipalities within within Vancouver, and of course, uh, Victoria has been pursuing this for quite a while. And so, you know, in in the urban centres, for sure, uh, how it plays in the in the less urban centres outside of Southern Vancouver Island and Lower Mainland, I'm not sure. We haven't had those conversations. I am on the executive of the UBCM, and depending how this motion goes on Tuesday, I'll shop it around to some of my colleagues on the, on the UBCM from across the province and see what they think. I think the, 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 the larger consideration for the province is, not, uh, is just making 30 the default. So you can still have posted speed limits of whatever makes sense in your community. So if you have a lonely country road that there's not a lot of people on, maybe it makes sense to have it at 50 or 60, who knows? But the point being that once you get off the, the main road and get into the little residential kind of subdivision that you're slowing down to 30. I just wonder if people will actually pay attention to this. You know, like we've had a lot of traffic calming measures, like there's a lot of roundabouts in the neighborhood, like we're doing all sorts of things, but people just don't pay attention. Like I see people blowing through roundabouts and they're not even slowing down. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and roundabouts are expensive. Roundabout speed bumps. These are all expensive solutions that, you know, when we talk about, you know, traffic bulges and all these kind of things, they're, they're major infrastructure projects that cost taxpayers a lot of money. So this is a, a less expensive solution. And again, it's about Hmm. changing driver perception when they're going through residential neighborhoods. And it's not about war on the cars. It's actually, you know, the irony too is that that having said that most people drive at 30, it's actually better for fuel economy when you're driving through residential neighborhoods to travel at a 
consistent mellow speed rather than accelerating and slowing down and stopping and accelerating and slowing down and stopping, which, which is, is what, what the, the speeders do when they, when, they, when they race at 50 through a residential neighborhood. That's generally how they tend to drive uh, because they do have to stop at stop signs. And you'd have to be a real jerk to blow through a stop sign at 50 in a residential neighborhood, although oh, I've, I've seen, seen it. I've seen that too. Yeah, I've well, seen it. You know, and I mean, you know, there's, there's, it's important to recognize that we do have changing driver demographics where we have electric cars coming, which are incredibly silent. We have autonomous vehicles coming, which are you know, silent and operated independently. So where do we set those default speed limits in residential neighborhoods? Does it make sense to be sort of proactive and preemptive and look towards this as, a, as an urban trend? And it's, again, I mean, I've got a list here of all the European cities, and there's hundreds of them. And I'm big sure cities, small cities, they're all moving this direction. What so. kind of response have you gotten, though? Because I have to tell you, when we were talking about this, it must have been Thursday or Friday, uh, a lot of people didn't like this idea. They thought sure. it was going too yeah. far. Yeah, and a lot of people have misinterpreted it as well, thinking it means blankets across the, the entire city. Uh, but you know, I've gotten most of the most of the responses I have gotten are actually quite positive, and a lot of them are coming from first responders, and more importantly, people who have lost somebody. Uh, I got into politics actually as a result of a good friend being hit by a car as a pedestrian. Now he was on a secondary arterial, but he suffered a permanent life changing brain injury. I spent a lot of time in the in neurological trauma ward, and you know, some of the stuff that we don't articulate when we look at fatality rates are just life changing injuries. And I've seen life-changing injuries as a result of pedestrians mm. being hit by, you know, three tons of steel. And it's, uh, it's painful to see how it impacts families and stuff. So I'm hearing from those families, people who have lost people, loved ones, people who have lost, you know, pets, people who have been injured themselves. Uh, those people's voices carry a lot more weight with me, and particularly the first responders who have reached out, who are on the scene. And they're the ones who actually see the kind of impacts on on families and communities all right so this is coming up at vancouver city council this week if you would like to weigh in you can email me simmy at cknw.com if you didn't get a chance to give us a call call our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ that's 331-2899 pete thanks so much for joining us today oh, my pleasure that is pete fryer vancouver city council representing the green party who's going to be bringing this motion to vancouver city council this week let's update you now on the top story today we know at least 290 people have been killed in those bomb attacks at churches and at hotels in uh, cities around Sri Lanka. Many of that, many of those deaths and the explosions happening in the capital of Colombo. The president of Sri Lanka has now declared tomorrow as an official national day of mourning. In issuing a statement, it also says that the country is seeking international assistance as it's trying to get to the bottom of the Easter Sunday bomb blast. Uh, Sri Lanka is citing intelligence agencies report that, quote, international groups were involved with the attacks. The statement also said that the president instructed Sri Lanka's security forces to provide additional security at the country's Catholic churches. And we know we were talking about the uh, religious diversity that they have there in Sri Lanka. About 7% or so of the population in Sri Lanka is Christian. And the vast majority of the population that identifies as Christian is Roman Catholic, hence the large number of Catholic churches that they have there. Meanwhile, here at home tonight in Surrey, a vigil is going to be held to remember those who died and were injured in these explosions. And one of the organizers is from Colombo in Sri Lanka. His name is Ransiri Fernando, and I caught up to him a few moments ago to learn more about tonight's event. Ransiri, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I understand that you're organizing uh, a vigil. Uh, Yes, we are a group of people organizing a vigil tonight. 
that will be held at the Holland Park in Surrey at 6.30. Okay, Holland Park at 6.30 tonight. And what do you hope to see happen tonight? Uh, we want to express our solidarity with the people who are affected. As a community, we want to pray for the repose of the souls. And we want to tell everybody that, you know, united we stand and divided we fall. That's the message we want to give. I understand you are from Colombo. Can you? What is Colombo like? Uh, that's the capital of Sri Lanka. Uh, it's in the western province. Uh, it's a densely populated uh, place, like uh, the church in Colombo, which was under attack, like St. Anthony's uh, Shrine. That's a high-dense population area. And on Easter Sunday, there will be uh, thousands of people coming to that church, attending the service there in the morning. I understand that Sri Lanka is such a diverse country when it comes to religion. What was that like when you were living there? Yeah, it's a very diverse culturally, ethnically, and religiously. We are a very diverse society. Like uh, religiously, we the majority of the uh, the people are Buddhists. Then we do have uh, the Christians. We do have the Hindus. We have the Muslims. And uh, then there are people who don't have religions as well. Ethnically, uh, there are Tamils, Sinhalese, Muslims, Burgers living there. And we all live in perfect harmony as one community, as one Sri Lankan people. Has that been just the last 10 years? Because there were some a, a lot of problems before that with the Civil War, were they not? Yeah, there was a Civil War. We just got out of it 2009. And yeah, that was, I don't think that it could be considered as a war between two communities. There were, there were two warring fractions. That is how I would see, because most of us, uh, we have inter, interracial marriages, interreligious marriages, and these, all these communities are so very well connected to each other. Then where does this violence come from, Ransiri? Can you explain that to people who, who don't understand? Right now, we, we, the matter is still under investigation. Uh, there is no positive proof as to who exactly was responsible for it, but they believe some kind of uh, an extremist organization is responsible for this violence and uh, for these all the bomb blasts that took place simultaneously at six or seven different places. Is Colombo, was there a lot of tourism coming to Sri Lanka then? I understand there were 39 foreigners who were killed as well in this attack. But I understand a lot of changed, right, in Sri Lanka over the last 10 years since the peace had happened. Yes, it, it, it was booming in tourism, just like in the past when we were kids, when we, when we were in high school, Sri Lanka was one of the most sought-after tourist destinations. And if I'm not mistaken, in 2017 and 2018, two consecutive years, Sri Lanka was one of the top 10 uh, tourist destinations in the world. So this is definitely going to affect the tourism industry in the country. I hope uh, it would not be kind of uh, uh, badly affecting that industry because tourism is one of the biggest economic factors in Sri Lanka. All right. So then tonight, though, you want people to focus on just remembering the victims. So once again, where is that vigil being held? It's at the Holland Park here in Surrey. It's, we are starting at 6.30. All right, Ransiri, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Have a good day. That is Ransiri Fernando, one of the organizers of tonight's vigil, as you heard there. It's happening in Holland Park in Surrey, starting at 6.30. Uh, they're, they're, they want essentially to gather to offer a vigil and remember those who were uh, killed and injured 
in the bombings and explosions in Sri Lanka. Right now, we're looking at at least 290 people, but 290 is kind of the official uh, number that they've given us, but that it could go higher as they wait for more information about those who were injured. Well, it is Earth Day today, so we thought this is, you know, a good time to check out this new report that's been put out by the World Wildlife Fund. And the topic of this report, conservation efforts, uh, protected areas uh, that are protected by the federal government or, in our case, the provincial government in British Columbia. And in particular, they took a look at the uh, area around the Okanagan. We know development pressures are always there, right? There's always more and more development that's happening. And the report today uh, sheds some more light on how that is impacting some of these protected areas. So to talk more about this, we're joined now by James Snyder, who is the Vice President of Science, Research and Innovation at the World Wildlife Fund in Canada. And James, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on today. So tell me, what exactly did you look at? So were you looking at like provincial parks, protected areas? What was it exactly? Yeah, so uh, the re- report released today, Earth Day, uh, is a national assessment on the status of our protected areas across the country. Um, so that includes national parks, provincial parks, uh, ecological reserves, uh, and essentially, in short, we're finding you know significant gaps, but also opportunities moving forward. Uh, one of w- one of five of which that we identified happened to be in the Okanagan, uh, which is our priority regions that have. You know, tremendous value for wildlife, including a species at risk, but also into the carbon that's stored in those important habitats, being wetlands, grasslands, other, you know, ecosystems like forests as well. Right, because one of the reasons why we go to the trouble of having these protected areas is to protect the species at risk. Yeah, one of the, you know, the principal uh, strategies that we've been using um, over the last 50 years towards the protection of, of wildlife has been protected areas. But, you know, surprisingly enough, there's been some pretty major gaps between where we site protected areas and where some of our most imperiled species are. Um, and so that's something that we've seen globally and now here in Canada, which is that, you know, there's a bit of a misalignment. And so we're missing that opportunity at time to really use protected areas as best as we can for meaningful protection for wildlife and including at-risk species, you know, like a number of which are found in the Okanagan region. Right. So what kind of gaps are we talking about here? Well, nationally, you know, uh, pretty significant gaps, you know, as much as 84 percent of those key hotspots of wildlife um, and at-risk species habitats are not yet adequately protected, you know, across the country. That's a major gap, you know, for carbon that we need to store in those wetlands, those grasslands, in our soils, you know, more than 70% of those important habitats are not protected. And so, you know, increasingly as we're seeing these kind of two major crises unfolding on a global stage, that of wildlife loss, you know, an extinction event that's happening uh, on geological timescales, as well as climate change. And these are two deeply interconnected crises, environmental crises. And one of those solutions, one that we need to be investing in in a real meaningful way and really building our ambition on, is protected areas. Okay, so what does it take or what would it take to make the kind of difference that you're talking about? Well, right now, uh, Canada has committed to protecting 17% of our terrestrial areas and inland waters, so that's our lakes and our rivers. Um, and where, you know, we're really pushing right across the country to, to get that goal. Um, we're right now, I think, just at a, a slightly over 10%. But 
but that's not nearly enough, 17%. Some of the most recent science says between 30 and 50% of these habitats need to be protected if we are likely to be able to reverse these declines of wildlife that we're seeing around the world. And so over the next decade or so, we're really going to need to meaningfully invest in our protected areas to ensure that they're sited in a way, you know, that has real value for wildlife uh, and that, that we're able to provide important connectivity, you know, between protected areas as well that will allow for species to move. And that's increasingly important in the context of, you know, of a warming world, in the context of climate change, which is that species are moving. And, and so it cannot be simply a stationary approach. We need to allow for good connectivity between our protected areas. What are the at-risk species? Well, the, the Okanagan region is actually one of the hotspots that we found right across the country. There's a large number of them, although we've highlighted in our report two, um, including the desert night snake, which is at the you know at uh, quite um, highly uh, at risk within the region, uh, at risk of extirpation, so being lost from Canada, and that and that's largely being attributed to urban and agricultural de- development as as well as roads, and roads are often issued for snakes right across the country, uh, as well as the pallid bat, um, and so we've seen uh, white nose syndrome as really heavily. Um, uh, impacting many bat species in eastern Canada and moving westward with each passing month. Um, but we're also finding that habitat loss and degradation is an important issue for this bat species. And these are just two examples among many of, you know, at-risk species that are found within the Okanagan region of BC. So when we talk about, like, protected areas, then, James, do we mean that, like, no parks or anything like that, that just leave those areas as pristine wilderness? Or can there be some park access? I think it can be a mix. And, and in some ways... You know, in, in some cases, it may have to be, you know, a strict ecological reserve, a protected area where there's not a lot of recreational use, you know, a place that's for nature, and that will depend on the types of species that are found there, how sensitive they are to disturbance. In other instances, we know there's, you know, important cultural and recreational values, whether it be for fishing, you know, or mountain biking or hiking. Um, and so it's finding that balance in terms of ensuring that some protected areas are there for people to enjoy and love. I think we all enjoy being out in nature in that way, and, and some protected areas allow us to do that. But we also have to recognize that a heavy use of some of these places can, in fact, be to the detriment of the same species that we were there to enjoy. Right. We talked a lot about BC here, but is there any province that is doing a good job of this? Well, you know, it's important to say that BC actually is doing quite well comparatively. Um, and when we look right across the country, you know, the province is, is doing well in terms of some of its area-based targets, better than many other jurisdictions, uh, and having done so in a, com- a relatively representative way, which is one of the key aspects that we look at in our methodology. But that's not to say that we're done. You know, the job's not complete. And if anything, there are really important habitats that need to be protected, that need to be included in our protected areas network. When we look, you know, across the country, we've identified five of these priority regions. Grassland ecosystems in the prairie provinces are one of those systems that are heavily imperiled, you know, amongst the most heavily stressed ecosystems in North America, if not the world, in terms of the decline of habitat that we've seen in, you know, grasslands in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and the edges of Manitoba. Similarly, here in southern Ontario, where I am today, you know, we see a heavily fragmented and degraded landscape in terms of, you know, a heavily, heavily used area of the country where many of us live, millions of us live. 
but it's also the same place where there are hundreds of at-risk species. And so we need to be finding these solutions in terms of effective protection and conservation of these lands to ensure that those species are there into the future. And then finally, in Atlantic Canada, we see very low levels of protection in many of our maritime provinces, uh, and where there's great work to be done there in terms of really catching up um, to, to be being at, at that 17% goal, if not beyond. Yeah. Finally, in the north, in just the last pieces in the north, in our northern territories, some vast wilderness that has huge importance in terms of the carbon that's sequestered in some of our peatlands, in terms of those lowlands, in terms of those um, you know, permafrost that's there today. And so right across their country, there are examples of places that should be a priority for us as we move forward and, and talk about reversing wildlife decline. That's so interesting, though, because, you, you, you know, you talk about the Maritimes, Atlantic Canada and North, you know, where there is the population is quite low in those areas. So why aren't we doing a better job of protecting some of those areas if we don't have the amount of development and population there? Yeah, and that's a really excellent question, which is to say we haven't done enough in many of those places. We need to do more, and we need to do more quickly. Um, but at the same time, we can't simply um, leave these human landscapes, these places that we, uh, so many of us live in, um, and, and avoid you know, taking those conservation actions. Because if we do, it'll be at our, our, at our own peril in terms of the species that we will lose. Okay, James, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me today. That is James Snyder, who's the Vice President of Science, Research, and Innovation at the World Wildlife Fund in Canada. Well, if you've ever looked at an older cookbook, then you must have wondered, listen, how do they eat some of this stuff? I mean, old recipes like that infamous luncheon meat salad mold. Who would eat that? There are so many more like that. There's a new book that delves into the history of all of these kind of strange but true recipes. It's called American Advertising Cookbooks. And the author, Christina Ward, joins us now. Christina, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So what is the idea behind this book and how did this idea come to you? Well, I'm a cookbook collector and a fan and growing up, in Wisconsin, uh, you know, Canada light, as we usually like to say. <laughs> so, um, you know, we grew up with these recipes, the, the idea of like casseroles and canned foods and things out of boxes. And, as, you know, that combination of growing up eating that stuff and being a cook and a cookbook collector, you know, I realized that with the advertising cookbooks, it was a very, it was a great snapshot of what you know, American and as well as Canadian culture was, though the book is focused on American uh, companies, these cookbooks, these advertising cookbooks were prevalent throughout Canada as well. Right. But you must have come across some very odd recipes because these are books. So you essentially wrote a book about the books that um, companies would put out to try to get people to use their products. Right, because there's more to it. You know, we see these pictures of, you know, something like, you know, kind of ham salad in jello and go, ooh, right, it's disgusting. But it, more than just the picture is there's a story um, about how they got that way, how these recipes were developed, uh, how the advertisers marketed them to people, and uh, then how companies then worked to develop and create these recipes, which I think is, you know, more than more of an interesting story than just looking at um, icky pictures. Right. And because this was about an effort to kind of influence the food industry, change people's eating there, habits. Very much so. It's it post-World War One especially really changed um, how North Americans ate. Uh, this idea of the idea of being able to preserve food for longer than just a few days. 
And as the technology improved with like canning, dehydrating, it allowed for small mom and pop businesses, say like the Hellman, Hellman's mayonnaise company, like something like mayonnaise, which would only last a few days if you made it yourself to all of a sudden put it in a jar, ship it all over the world. And as you build a company, as you build a brand, you need to get folks on board and using it for everything. And w- one of the great ways to do that was to develop recipes for it, to teach people essentially how to eat the food they were making. Right. So let's talk about one of the most interesting stories in the book, which has to do with that luncheon meat jello mold salad, because there's a big story behind that. Doesn't it involve like Sigmund Freud's nephew? It does. Edward Bernays. Uh, who was Sigmund Freud's nephew and grew up in the United States, trained under Uncle Sigmund in the latest of the psychoanalytic techniques and first took them for uh, the American government at the Versailles Peace Treaties post-World War One, And he was charged with, for the Committee with Public Information with spinning a positive message for the outcome of what the war was and what the peace treaty was. And he's credited to coining the phrase, uh, you know, know, bringing, you know, democracy in our time, you know, and and putting that message forward. After his efforts um, post-World War I, he realized he could use those same techniques for companies in advertising. And that's really how modern advertising began. Wow. So there's a reason why we use, well, like, you know, why you use Toll House chocolate chips to make chocolate chip cookies. Like all of that has been influenced because of advertising. Absolutely. I mean, his, Bernays started with his first real advertising campaign was with cigarettes, essentially getting women to smoke cigarettes in the 1920s, um, taking advantage of the women's rights movements and suffragettes and this ideal of what women were. So he was the fellow that invented the idea of not just saying, you know, hey, smoke a cigarette because you like it, but, you know, recruiting doctors to say cigarette smoking will keep you thin. Look at all the movie stars now smoking cigarettes. And so by using those techniques to really work on the aspirational nature of people, of us wanting to be either better people or, you know, playing on something in our brains, he was really able to, um, move advertising forward, and you know, and we see that effect today. Right. Okay. Tell me about bananas too, because people think of bananas as just you know bananas, but there's a huge story that they play in the 20th century. The absolutely, and Bernays's next project after cigarettes was bananas. Uh, United Fruit bananas again. Um, they don't have a terribly long shelf life, but as The technology moved forward, the ability to store and ship them relatively quickly with boats and and trains. Bananas were able to get shipped all over North America. But again, with all the bananas, we have to teach people how to eat them. And that's, again, where Bernays came in. And those are the really early advertising cookbooks um, that started touting the health benefits of bananas that, you know, recommending eating a banana a day. But conversely, it's really funny if you look at the very early uh, United Fruit banana cookbooks, there's also images on like how to eat a banana, essentially saying, <laughs> don't eat the skin, peel it first. Oh <laughs> so, my and some and so weird, we re- from, weird recipes too, right? Oh, crazy recipes. And again, that was the idea that we have to teach people how to eat the food. So they're going to throw every idea they possibly have at, you know, at people. And the ones, of course, we remember are the ones that are just totally outrageous 
you know, most famously, like the ham wrapped bananas with a cheese sauce. Mm, Disgusting. Yeah, that is disgusting. disgusting. (laughs) But, you know, but there's also recipes that were put forward by these food manufacturers in these advertising cookbooks that kind of stuck. Um, Things like the Campbell's soup kind of casseroles where, you know, it's a, a casserole. You just add, you know, your kind of ground hamburger, a can of soup and like tater tots or something like that. Those are still around today and people love those kind of hot dishes. Right, and that's strictly advertised. Well, think about the green bean casserole, right? Americans don't have Thanksgiving without it, yet that's one of these recipes too, isn't it? It is, and it was developed by a woman, Dorcas Riley, who was trained as a home um, economist who had you know, an advanced degree and worked for the Campbell Soup Company and developed these recipes. The brilliant marketing for that specific recipe was that they directed it towards the Thanksgiving celebration. And so if you ask most Americans, how often do they make green bean casserole? They don't. They only make it on like Thanksgiving and sometimes Christmas. And again, that was great advertising by marrying the dish itself, this recipe to the holiday. It became so bonded in people's minds. It's like you almost can't have Thanksgiving without that horrible green bean casserole. <laughs> I guess, Christina, what strikes me about all of this is that we think that we're creating traditions, that we think that, oh, this is a family cookie recipe or this is a family Thanksgiving casserole recipe. It's not. Like, we have been kind of influenced and manipulated by the big companies. We have, absolutely. Um, it's something that was a study that was recently done um, in Milwaukee, where I'm from, uh, the local newspaper put out a call for the oldest family recipes they could find. And the majority of recipes all came from the 1920s and were originating from those advertising cookbooks. Wow. Okay, that really tells us a lot, doesn't it? Uh, Christina, thank it you does. so much for talking to us about this today. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That is Christina Ward. The book is called American Advertising Cookbooks. I found this so fascinating. You know, in the last 20 years or so, there are very few people who have spoken so openly about Islam and faith and world politics as author Urshad Manji. She has written several books, one of which, The Trouble with Islam Today, has been translated into 30 different languages. Well, her latest is also very much a sign of our current times. It's called Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for divided times. It's about essentially bridging the divide with our community members, our neighbors, or all of us. So we wanted to find out more about this. Urshad Manji joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Simi. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Well, the book is just so unique. I have to ask you, like, what brought you to writing this book? (laughs) Well, um, so I have been treated as a poster child of multiculturalism for most of my life. And from that position, I've been able to observe how diversity actually gets practiced. And I've been noticing more and more over the last number of years, Simi, that diversity is being practiced as labeling. You know, throwing labels such as um, black or queer or feminist or um, on the very negative side, uh, libtard or racist. And um, I have been uh, really troubled by all of this slicing and dicing of individuals into, you know, groupiness. Uh, because, frankly, that's what the early colonists did, both in Canada and the United States, right? They, they sliced and yeah. diced people into, you know, compartments 
stuffed those those people into those compartments, assigned value to them, and then created a hierarchy based on those values. And that's kind of like what, you know, the supposedly enlightened folks among us are doing today. I just don't know how that amounts to progress. Right. How did you see that discussion, though, happening as you were conversing with your dog? <laughs> okay, so I know that sounds absurd, but right. hear me out. Um, so, you know, one of the points I'm making in this book is that we all have an other, somebody or something that we are afraid of, and that if only we lowered our defenses and actually engaged with the other, uh, we would see that those anxieties that we have have no substance and moreover are begging to be overcome. So get this. Raised as a Muslim and still identifying as one, um, I had a deathly fear of dogs. And one year, I had a terrible health crisis, and my then partner, now wife, Laura, uh, urged me to uh, adopt a dog because she said, you have to understand that they have incredible healing properties. Well, I had to get over my fear of dogs in order to do that. But when I did, I learned something about Lily, my dog, that was, frankly, mind-blowing. So here is somebody, um, I would call her a somebody, she's a being, not a thing, um, who was blind and who was old. But, but those were my labels for her. And the fact of the matter is, she may have been both of those things factually, but in a larger sense, she was so much more. She was the most independent being I have ever had the pleasure of, uh, of, of uh, engaging with. And that reminded me that everything that I've been thinking about the way, the corrupt way in which diversity is being practiced these days can even be represented by this dog. And so I began talking to her about my ideas. And I'll just finish off the story by saying, you know, every once in a while, she would tilt her head as I was speaking with her as if to ask, Mama, what have you been smoking? Or, <laughs> Mama, have you thought about this, this particular point from a point of view, uh, you know, that is opposite to yours? That's when I realized, my God, we can actually role model the kind of discussion in this book, Lily and I, that I am suggesting that our readers try with the people in their lives. So how would that work then, Urshad? Like, are you suggest people that you disagree with? Like, we're so quick, you're right, to label people and say, I'm not going to talk to that person. How do we now, how do you break bread with those people? Well, um, I'm going to say something that might sound obvious, but then I'll backtrack to explain why it's so okay. hard. First thing we've got to do, first thing we've got to do is take a deep breath um, and slow down the blood rush in our body. You see, we are all born with a brain that is, in the first instance, impulsive. And that brain, this very ancient brain of ours, worked well for us when we were living on the savanna and, and hunting and gathering our food. Because back then, everything that moved was a potential threat. The problem is that today, we, we don't live in that kind of society, yet the ancient part of our brain has not evolved to catch up with today. So... Even when we face mere disagreement, the brain makes us believe that we are facing something like uh, mortal threat, mortal Ah. danger. And that's why we actually have to outwit our own brain. And you can do that first by taking a deep breath. And that way you are slow jamming your brain and buying time to think in a more rational way. Then the next thing to do is listen. Listen to understand, not to win. Listen to the other person's point of view and ask questions. 
based not on any kind of hidden agenda that you have to change their minds, but rather on what you have heard them say. And what you're doing, um, you know, is tapping into a very basic law of human psychology, which is this. If you want to be heard, you first have to be willing to hear. Because when you hear your other, their emotional defenses come down. And that way, they are much more likely to hear you. Right. If I could sort of sum up this, uh, you know, what, what do I do question, uh, think about it like this, and I'll get a little Kennedy-esque about this. <laughs> Ask not what you can do to change the other person's mind. Ask what you are missing about the other person and watch what happens in that conversation. Wow, that's that's really powerful. Listen, when you're in town, you're going to have to come in and spend some more time with us here in studio. I would love to do that. All right. Th- listen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. That is Urshad Manji. Now, the book is called Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times. What do you know about microbes? They are microorganisms, things like bacteria or viruses, and they have a huge impact on our daily life. But can they actually help us stay healthy as we get older? That is the intriguing topic of a new book, which is called The Whole Body Microbiome. One of the authors is Dr. Brett Finley. He's a microbiologist. And if you want to know more about this book, the title again, The Whole Body Microbiome. It's how to harness microbes inside and out for lifelong health. And Dr. Finley's with us to talk more about it. Thanks for being here. Pleasure, Simi. What made you want to write this? What, did, what gave you the great idea? <laughs> well, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Let Them Eat Dirt. It was how to raise your kids with your microbes. That. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and then everyone said, well, I've had my kids. What about me sort of thing? What can I do? And then um, I actually co-wrote it with my daughter who's doing a PhD in gerontology, and she's 30-ish. And even she's concerned about skin wrinkles and the first signs of aging at that age. So really, we decided to combine my microbiology expertise with her aging expertise to write a book that's really, it's based on the science, but it's um, hopefully easy to understand for everyone of what you can do now based on the science of these microbes that we're just suddenly realize they have profound impacts on both our health and disease that even five years ago, we had no idea. How did these get overlooked for so long then? Well, it's a bunch of reasons, but um, and we've known about microbes since the late 1600s when they were first discovered, but really what happened is they brought online DNA sequencing. So you can't grow most of these microbes, but you can actually sequence them and see who you have in you based on DNA sequencing. And that just exploded the field. And the last five years, it's it's impacting many different areas. Okay. So when you look at this book, and there's a lot of different areas that you cover in this book, maybe you could explain to people then how do these microbes play a role in our health? What do they do? Yeah, well, a lot of things. Um, first of all, we have to start out when I look at you, when you look at me, we think we see a human, right? A homo sapiens. Wrong. What you actually see is a homo sapiens, and there's as many microbes in and on you as there are cells in your body. So you're as microbe as you are human, a cell number, and all the microbes in one of your hands outnumbers the entire number of people on this entire planet. Now so you're making everybody look at their hands. Yeah, well, you won't see anything <laughs> in your hands, right? Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're there, right? Um, so so we, we are basically the super organs that us and all these microbes that live in, in and on us. And what we're now realizing, they, they make these molecules and they digest our food and they do all these different things that we realize play big roles in both health and disease. So to take a look at disease, for example, the top 10 reasons why the average Canadian dies, number one, I mean, 
there's only one that's actually microbe, and that's pneumonia. Um, but it turns out that if you take a look at these now with what we know, nine of those ten reasons you're going to die now actually have microbes at the center of them. We just never realized before. How? Like you're talking about things like <laughs> heart disease and everything. Let's take cardiovascular disease. That's yeah. heart attacks and strokes, atherosclerosis, right? Yeah. So when you eat red meat, what happens is the microbes break down the red meat in pieces of it, and they form this molecule that gets changed in your body, and that molecule then causes atherosclerosis. So if you take animals, we call them germ-free, they have no microbes in them, you give them all the red meat you want, they will never get atherosclerosis. And vegans and vegetarians, they lack these microbes, they don't eat red meat, they have way less levels of this. And for the meat eaters, um, there is hope because, at least in animals, if you drug the enzymes in the microbes, so drug the bugs, not us, but drug the bugs so they can't break it down, you can then feed these animals copious quantities of red meat and they actually don't get atherosclerosis. So that's heart attack and strokes right there. Okay, I'm wrapping my head around that. That's really <laughs> quite something. So now what we're talking about doing then is altering the microbes to affect our health. Right, and the, the best medical example is a gross topic, but one of my favorites is fecal transfers. And I've heard about th- this. That is what it sounds like. You take um, feces from a healthy person, put it in a sick person. There's this, this disease called caused by Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, which you go into the hospital, let's say you're having a hip it's operation, yeah. you go on antibiotics, and then what happens, the antibiotics kill off all the healthy microbes, and then you get this horrible disease, and this kills people. So it's caused by antibiotics. So how do you treat this disease? Antibiotics have maybe a 25% treatment rate. But if you do a fecal transfer from a healthy person, you get a 94% cure rate. Unreal. And, and, and that's the, the first real medical example of a disease that could actually kill you being saved by simply swapping your microbes. Unbelievable. So how can we use microbes to help us age better? Be yeah, healthier, live the, that, that is the genesis of the book. What can we do now based on the science we have? And there's many things you can do. Some are fairly simple. Diet. Um, for example, there's this thing called the MIND diet, which is basically the Mediterranean diet. If you follow that, it's fruits, nuts, you know, vegetables, all the things you know you're supposed to eat. Very little red meat. Glass of red wine a day. Yay. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, not much butter and things. If you follow that, you can drop your dementia rates by at least 50% just by a diet. And we know what the diet does. It changes the microbes into much healthier microbes. They block inflammation, and this then decreases um, um, Alzheimer's and dementia, for example. Exercise is another way. You think exercise, well, it's good for my heart, right? Well, it turns out what exercise does, it actually pushes your microbes to a much healthier composition. So not only are you giving you heart health, you're giving your microbe health. And these microbes we know now actually basically then promote some health benefits that way. It sounds like the microbes really run the world. (laughs) Well, I'm biased. I tend to believe so. They, They certainly play a major part in it, and that's something we didn't know a few years ago. So what is it, what things can people do then to improve their health? These are the things that we're always told to do. Right. But are there other things as well? Certainly. Um, here's one that, that that's, I found a bit surprising is brush your teeth three times a day. That'll drop your Alzheimer's dementia rates by over 50%. What? What does brushing teeth have to do with brain disease, right? Well, it turns out if you have poor oral health, these microbes seep into your body and they cause this low-grade inflammation. It's called inflammaging, which then causes tissue damage and that then leads to Alzheimer's dementia, the damage in the brain we see. And, and this is a, a theme we see throughout the book, that if, if you can keep your microbes healthy and decrease this inflammation, you can block or decrease a lot of the effects of aging. And what happens when you turn 65 or so is your microbes fall off a cliff and they go to this really bad kind of composition that's very inflammatory, and your gut also gets more permeable, so these microbes seep through and cause this inflammation. 
So again, only in mice, but if you take young mice and do a fecal transfer of the feces into old mice, you decrease that inflammation, and the old mice seem to live longer. So, so let's we'll, we'll have a party with young people sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but then, how do you determine who the healthy people are? Like, what makes that person healthy enough to be the person that you'd be like, yes, use that person? Well, well I mean, one of the fun things is as we live longer in society, there's some amazing studies of people who live to 100, 105, 110. We're looking at those microbes. There was a fabulous article that was entitled... Um, um, ridiculously healthy 90-year-olds, and these were people actually in China, that they had microbes much more similar to a 30-year-old compared to the older people. So the, one of the ideas is if you can keep your microbes in sort of a healthy configuration, you can actually decrease and delay all the symptoms we see with age. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. But how do we do it? Like, <laughs> do is we it prove- diet or like overall? It's, it's many of these things. When you look at people who live longer, um, basically um, it, it's diet, it's exercise. You should be motile. You should be um, having social contact with other people. Don't just live in an old folks' home all by yourself. You should be on that rug with your grandkids and letting the dog lick you and all that kind of stuff to get your microbes and decre- decreasing stress. And we know all four of those reasons, actually, now microbes are at the center of it. And if you do those kind of things, you push your microbes, which then seems to gender much healthy aging. Now I have to ask you this, Dr. Finley. <laughs> what do you think of when you see people using like antibacterial stuff on their hands? I go nuts. Um, <laughs> I mean, why I, is that? Well, well, because I, I think we're done with the age of infectious diseases for the most part. I mean, if you look around, what affects people these days? It's not rheumatic fever. It's not polio. It's not smallpox. It's obesity, diabetes, metabolic diseases. You know, Alzheimer's type things. And when you look at all those diseases what we realize is that we're actually killing off the microbes that we've evolved with, with antibiotics and sanitation, all these things. And yes, that works great for decreasing infectious disease, but it hasn't worked so well for basically it's getting rid of all the good microbes. Right, so, so there's I a balance here, right? There, it is a balance. I mean, I wish I called the book Eat More Dirt or something, you know, because, because it applies throughout your life. Right, so there's, there's cleanliness and then there's going overboard. And yes, you should use hand sanitizer if you're going to the hospital or an old folks' home, but you don't need hand sanitizer in every room of your house. You don't have to wash your hands 500 times a day. Once with soap and water with dinner, you know, embrace your microbes. Go outside, get dirty. That's what we've done as a species for, for eons, and now we're, we're avoiding that. We live in these clean bubbles, and that's bad for your microbes. Uh, this is why I love having you on, right? If you come on, I think you scare the crap out of people out there. They're going, what Literally. is this guy talking about? Yes, you do. Uh, the book is called The Whole Body Microbiome. It's how to harness microbes inside and out for lifelong health. Uh, Dr. Finley, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Pleasure, Simi. And the author, of course, Dr. Brett Finley, microbiologist.